from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome to Terra Informa. I'm Jason Wong. And I'm Dylan Hall. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we're bringing you two great pieces. But first, we have some headlines. On Tuesday the 24th, 123 birds were either found dead or had to be euthanized at the Fort Hills oil sands development. The exact reason for their death has not been confirmed. But Suncor, the lead developer at Fort Hills, says that, Quote, Our bird deterrent systems, including cannons, radar, and effigies, those are scarecrows, were in place and active at the site at the time. Unquote. However, Suncor has admitted, Quote, Given the unusual nature of the situation, we have taken additional steps to prevent any further bird landings. Unquote. Time will tell what those words mean. Greenpeace and other activists are using this report to push the call for government intervention to help solve some of the issues regarding tailings ponds across Alberta. Tailings ponds and waste ponds are responsible for the deaths of 1,600 ducks in 2008, 550 birds in 2010, 122 birds in 2015, and 31 blue herons in 2015. After 45 years, the snow leopard has been removed from the endangered species list. The decision by the International Union for Conservation of Nature came after many years of research by five international experts. The snow leopards have now been upgraded to a vulnerable species, which is less than 10,000 in the wild and a decline of 10%. The news is exciting, but the cats have a long way to go before they can be considered thriving. Problems like climate change, poaching, and habitat loss still affect these creatures, though habitat conservation efforts have improved within their natural habitat of Asia. Not all are viewing the status change as celebration, with many conservation organizations like the Snow Leopard Trust fighting the status change, worrying that removing them from the endangered species list will have negative impacts on snow leopard populations. If you want more information on either of these stories, you can find links on our website, terrainforma.ca. Now on to this week's stories. Last spring, Terra Informers Lauren, Charlie, and Amanda went to an event called Living with Bats that was being held at Wild Bird Unlimited in Edmonton. Aaron Lowe, the Edmonton Regional Coordinator of the Alberta Community Bat Program, gave a presentation on general bat topics and how to attract bats to your yard. Tara caught up with Erin after her presentation to ask her about the challenges facing bats today. So I'm Erin Lowe. Um, I'm the Edmonton Regional Coordinator of the Alberta Community Bat Program. And you're speaking today about bats. How, how to include them 
include them if you want to check them to, to your area or kind of what to do if you um, think that you need to exclude them from a house or kind of just living with bats and kind of appreciating bats as well. Uh, so as I was saying with data collection, so we're moving into the second year um, this summer of a citizen science-based pro project. So we're encouraging um, landowners who have roofs on their properties to submit um, the locations of, of bat roofs. So essentially what we're trying to do is get an idea of what species are using these roosts and then just some of the characteristics. So whether it's in an attic or whether it's in a barn or whether it's a natural roost, a bat house, bat condo, what, whatever the situation might be, then we can really tie it all together and kind of figure out which bats are using um, which areas and kind of what, what they're looking for. Um, the big thing with bats is they're pretty difficult to identify, so that's where we're asking for a guano sample. So it's, it's a relatively um, cost-effective way that we can get a fairly reliable um, identification of the bat, as well as um, counts as well, if that's something that, that you can do, is just to get an idea of how big these houses are. Um, so just kind of generally speaking, um, lots of bats, huge amount of bats. So they actually make up a 20% of all mammals, um, over 1,200 species. And we're finding out more like species all the time with these netting projects. Again, it's birds are a little bit easier to study in, in the sense that they're not kind of flying around in the middle of the night and not at times when people are generally kind of just wandering around looking for birds. So it's it's a very difficult group to study, and that's kind of probably led to uh, a lot being unknown about bats. Um, every continent except for Antarctica as well. So they're they're really quite everywhere. Generally speaking, again, um, they can be divided into megabats or microbats. So megabats are your fruit eaters or nectar um, drinkers, and then your microbats are going to be the ones that are using echolocation, uh, so eating the insects, and as well as like amphibians and um, rodents and stuff. They they have some really unique, really unique diets. Um, in terms of kind of convincing why bats are awesome, it's they can eat a ton of mosquitoes. So if you think of how long they can live for and how big these colonies can get, it's just it's an insane amount. It's like tons and tons of mosquitoes over the course of the colony's kind of lifetime, which is just awesome. So that eats a thousand mosquitoes an hour. Is that the colony or per bat? That's per bat. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. No, it's just it's just unreal. Um, threats to bats. So habitat degradation is a big one. So again, it's as I had mentioned before, it's the roots that they're choosing often aren't like the nice, young, healthy looking trees. They're ones that they can get into or ones with like heart rot or frost cracks, um, cavities and such. So it's, they're going to be taken down due to the human um, safety concern. And then also just um, like with forestry and different developments as well, we're taking out quite a bit of forest and they do require older, mature forests. I don't know, have, have you heard much about wind turbines and bats? Not too, too much. Um, so something new that's kind of been popping up, it's, so there's fatality associated with the bats physically striking the blades, but the biggest thing is actually something called barotrauma. So it's essentially bats are just getting too close to the turbines. They're not detecting them for um, a few different supposed reasons, but and essentially just the pressure difference between what the turbine's kind of producing and between their lungs is just causing their lungs um, to explode essentially. <coughs> so they're just dropping and out of the air, which is just very, very horrible. And it's, we're thinking um, birds and bats are a little bit different just in kind of the design of their lungs. So these are much more pliable. And it's again kind of a flight ad adaptation um, as a mammal that can fly. This is um, definitely more of a concern out east, like to the point that they're actually having to shut down um, like entire wind turbine facilities because they're just 
the numbers are too high. So there's a lot of talk right now, um, especially I think with pushes to get more on green energy um, to figure out how we can address this because it's the numbers are getting a little bit too high and you know even experts are expecting over the next I think 50 years like 90% declines and it's especially in the hoary pat. So it's we've got wind, like white no syndrome for our little browns and all of a sudden we have like a 90% population decline in hoary bats over the next few years because of wind turbines. Yeah. Would it work at all to have any kind of like a signal generator that would... <laughs> yeah, it's it's something that we've, um, we've you know, it's something that I've been reading about and something that people are, are talking about. So ultrasonic whistles is kind of, but problem is, is like, we don't understand enough what attracts or like repels bats. There's not enough knowledge if it's actually going to attract them or like. Which you wouldn't want to have happen. No, that, that would probably be not, not the option to go with. Um, a big thing is shutting them down. Um, most of these fatalities happen during like a three week period. So in Alberta, at least, the spring migration doesn't seem to be as bad as the fall migration. And it's not just the juveniles. Like when we were finding an equal amount of kind of adults and juveniles. So for whatever reason, Fall migration seems to kill a lot more bats, so kind of just trying to find mitigations to minimize fatalities. So the white nose syndrome I'll talk a little bit more about. Um, I think that this one's been in the news quite a bit, especially with it popping up in Washington last year, Washington State last year. Um, so just kind of the basics of it in case you haven't heard about it. So this is affecting our hibernating bats. Um, aptly named again, not the most original naming group, white nose, because it's a white fungus predominantly on their noses. <coughs> it was first detected in 2006 in New York. Um, today, I mean, it's like it's killed over six million bats, and it's wiping out entire hibernating colonies, like thousands and thousands at, at one go. You just walk in, and, and there's just carcasses everywhere, and it's spreading really fast. <coughs> so how it kills, it's it's not necessarily um, the fungus itself that it that kills, but it's basically just it wakes them up too much over the course of the winter. So they only have a set amount of fat reserves. So if they, um, having to wake up constantly to be grooming this fungus off, that is just like, it's growing into them. So it's also causing tissue damage, so that's again, um, it's going to start growing into their wings, and so that's when they're, they're not able to fly, um, as well as forcing them out in the winters. So different signs, this is more often not if you're actually kind of near a hibernacular, you're going to see them flying during the day in the winter. Um, you're also going to see the white fungus on the nose, wings, ears, or tail. This is, they're going to groom it off as soon as they come out. Um, so it's not really something if you find a bat, you should be seeing it necessarily. Um, but this is again where we can shine like a UV light on it and then uh, you can see the damage on the wings. So current research, um, the biggest thing as I mentioned, uh, it's probably what the caving groups are doing. Just trying to get an idea of where these hibernacula are. Um, public outreach and awareness, you know, just kind of getting people to like bats and promote bats and trying to help them as much as we can during the summer so they're in better shape for, for the winter. A lot of funding and stuff from the government and different organizations in terms of research. The thing with cures is like, it's it's a good idea and obviously it, its attention is, is needed there, but I mean, even if we find a cure for it, it's like, how are we supposed to apply that? It's not like we can just code a cave in it. It's There's a lot of different kind of um, interactions in the cave that we can't just apply like antifungal to the entire cave and hope for the best. It's who knows like what else you'd be wiping out or, or changing within it. So it's it's a tough one. It's it's a really tough one. So the big thing is kind of just at this point raising awareness, finding out where the hibernacula are, and then for the caving community as well. If, if you are into that, it's just making sure kind of like gears decontaminated, or if you've been in white nose areas and caves, it's just like using entirely different gear. You don't want to start 
start being the reason to introduce a, a fungus to, to Alberta. What people have thought is like a truck probably brought it over or something. So again, bats like being in blinds. So again, with like campers and stuff, it's a big thing if, if you do have a camper van and stuff, it's or umbrellas, like close them during the night so you know that they're not getting in there. Um, open them up, like the uh, blinds before you leave, and then you just know that you're not bringing them across. On that happy note. <laughs> I want to thank Erin for coming out today on such a blustery day to <laughs> yeah, help thanks. us understand a little bit more about, about that. Um, so uh, feel free to... Uh, uh, can you tell us about your experience working with wind turbines and bats? Yeah, so I, I was um, working for an environmental consulting company, so it was one of the projects that we were involved with. And uh, essentially, with the government has um, like pre- and post-construction um, guidelines that are required, so anytime that a new facility goes up, we need to um, yeah do the, do the pre- and post-construction. So we were looking after the post-construction, so um, we were walking around looking for bat and bird carcasses, and then um, they had a certain kind of threshold that they had to, or they couldn't exceed, otherwise um, further mitigation, and, such as like shutting down the turbines at night, or... Um, kind of further further actions if, if that was required as well but um, bats are definitely seem to be more affected in, in eastern Canada with wind turbines not to say it, it is a minimal risk here um, but it's the the numbers are, are a lot higher in, in eastern Canada than what we're seeing here luckily I guess in some ways <laughs> but is that just because there's like more winter turbines in the east or I don't know like um, I think Maybe, but I mean, even then, the the proportion of like bats that we're finding dead underneath are a lot higher, and it's um like even some of the larger facilities are are still not finding the numbers that um, Eastern Canada, so like the ones in Ontario, are finding for some reason. So hmm, I don't mysterious. know. Mysterious. It's very strange. <laughs> yeah. There's, uh, bats are kind of just yeah mysterious on so many levels. Yeah. <laughs> I've like seen these wind turbines. I don't think they're like being used or anything, but they're just like those like they're just cylinders, I guess, that kind of move. Do you think like those would be any better? I think so because okay. I mean it's um, the so the wind turbines. I mean these these are massive like blades and stuff. So I imagine the pressure differences that it's causing are, are fairly extensive. Mm-hmm. So I mean if you have something that's circular and like I've I haven't looked into this a ton. Like I've, I've heard it and read into it a little bit, but I imagine it's just going to be creating a much smaller. So I mean I think it's still going to affect them to a degree, but it's just it's going to minimize that that area that's causing that that pressure pressure difference so I, I do think they're hopefully hopefully one day it's yeah, it'll yeah. get there can you tell us why the hoary bat is your favorite bat because <laughs> it's adorable um i don't know it's i honestly think it's just because it's the prettiest and i've now just attached to that and now it's just i think it's awesome in every way i think the migratory species are are pretty cool yeah they're just they're they're cute and they're attractive and i kind of just love them <laughs> so and if someone's interested in getting into bats uh what would you recommend to them um i would say volunteering is is huge kind of just going out with people um, whether it's grad students or just people that are doing it so if you can find any sort of connection to go out with people that's kind of your best bet but a lot of it is um we're being driven to just more of acoustics rather than actual handling which handling was what got me into it um Kind of like talk talk to us about it. I mean, certainly, can email me, find out find out about the program as well, and find out different ways to get involved. That was Tara Informers Charlie, Lauren, and Amanda speaking with Aaron Lowe from the Alberta Community Bat Program.
There's no better way to get the attention of adults than through their children. Over the past school year, the Element Society has collaborated with the Lonely Whale Foundation to bring programming to schools centered around the topic of reducing single-use plastics. In this pilot project, students learned about the issues while gaining skills in communication, teamwork, and project management. Tara Informer Amanda Rooney recently spoke with two representatives from the Elements Foundation. In this interview, she first speaks with Laura Bamsey and then with Marnie Olson about the projects the students came up with and the implications of projects such as these. My name is Laura Bamsey, and I'm the acting executive director of the Element Society, and it's a nonprofit organization. And Catch the Wave is a program that was developed uh, with two nonprofits uh, the Element Society, which is the Canadian based nonprofit, along with the Lonely Whale Foundation, which is an American based nonprofit. So we were brought together to utilize some existing programs that we already have and bring them together to create Catch the Wave. So this pilot project, it's working with kids, right? Yeah, that's correct. We're working with um, schools, classes, or environmental clubs that are interested in doing something for the environment or sustainability related. So it sounds like your program is focused on plastic use and plastic waste reduction. That's correct. So our focus was on reducing single-use plastic, and we looked specifically at plastics that end up in the ocean. So the Lonely Whale Foundation had some statistics or found some statistics around what kinds of things are ending up in our oceans predominantly. So some examples are straws, plastic water bottles, styrofoam, coffee, single-use sort of coffee cups or coffee lids are kind of some of the main ones. There's a couple other in there as well. So we've really focused in on those ones and uh, schools working towards reducing those kinds of things that end up in the ocean uh, to, su- to support them to do that. So I guess they're working on raising awareness about single-use plastic. What kind of projects have they been working on to, to do this? Awareness is a huge and great step. Something that we do for the Element Society as part of our programming and part of the reason why we were sort of brought into the fold is we really focus on the project management of whatever they're working on. So it's kind of usually a year, multi-year long project. And we use this eight-step sort of process to help them do uh, a project that uh, they can see the impact and see the change. So we actually work with them to have them measure sort of how much plastic or whatever they're working on is leaving their school. So an example might be they might count before they start their project the number of plastic bottles leaving their school at the beginning of the year before they start, and they might have 10 bags. And then after they've done their program over a year, the idea is to count again and see if they've reduced that number. So we really focus on awareness as well as being able to communicate the impact of what they're actually achieving within their school. And then more broadly, if we work within a school district, we can see those impacts even within the whole district. And then to continue with some examples of what the students were doing this year, we we had one school in Richmond and then we had a few schools in Calgary and Fort McMurray. And the idea was for some of those schools in Calgary and Fort McMurray to 
have a connection to the ocean because they're, they're landlocked. Um, so the idea was to think about what's happening in the ocean even though we can't necessarily see it or we're not close to it. And the schools in Calgary and Fort McMurray did some really neat projects. We had one that was focusing on plastic bottles and they actually collected all the caps of the bottles and created an art project out of it. So it was a bit of art, but it also showed how much they were throwing away in a week or a day or a month by being able to display that in front of their school. And then other ones were focusing a lot on uh, single-use wrappers and being able to reduce them and see those impacts. And then our other big one was was water bottles, and they introduced uh, bringing in reusable water bottles for all the students, and they were able to eliminate around 60 or 70% of the water bottles. Yeah, that it gives me a lot of hope for like our next generations. Is there anything else that you would like to add? I think uh, the only thing I would like to add uh, is that we're really excited about moving this forward in Canada, and we're currently still looking for funding and sponsorship to make this happen in the upcoming school year and the future. So we'd just be excited for anyone who's interested in this, as well as other organizations working on I know there's a lot out there uh, doing single-use plastic and and working on ocean health um, to be able to work together and sort of take this Catch the Wave project to the next level. Um, so this pilot project called Catch the Wave, and it's uh, you've been working in schools to foster an awareness around single-use plastics? Yep. We're really interested in um, helping students examine the world around them in their community and to see opportunities for how they can actually have an impact in their community. This project really celebrates um, empowerment of, of the youth voice and their ability to be innovative and design and apply themselves in in ways that really matter to them. Our job is really just to give them the the framework and the tools that they need so that they can really run with it. So I think where the magic is of the program is when students have the chance to direct and control how they organize themselves, how they organize the message they want to deliver with support that, that the program offers, they really get excited, and that's when um, we start to see results that are measurable, and they see the importance of measuring the results. So they can they can not only, you know, build on that confidence that we really did make a difference, but also to the, to the community around them. I think we all celebrate the youth having that kind of impact. What I've discovered and didn't see coming was how impactful this is on teaching. Uh, and the teaching community, um, the teachers themselves uh, grow and develop as they watch their students do project-based learning in a in a supportive environment. Um, and the program really um, gives the teachers the kind of support that they need as well uh, to develop some of their skills to support the students. And we can sort of see an aligned sort of a, a, a growth that's happening in the students, and we can see it happening in the in the teachers, and they're building on they're in, they're, they have great um, uh, foundations of, of, in education, and um, they don't get very many opportunities to do project-based learning either. So it's, we see a lot of impact um, in that way as well. So it's really exciting because they can take the skills that they learn in this project and apply it to any project, but what we've noticed is they get so excited about what they're working on and, and the fact that they've been able to direct it in, in, in the way that matters to them that 
they can't wait to start the next level of the project. It's a really important issue um, to reduce the amount of plastic that we're uh, putting into the ocean. It, it makes me kind of think of that garbage islands. Yes, the Pacific gyre. These things that aren't, you know, in our backyard, until we start building connections between our daily choices and some of those issues that exist in other parts of the world, we can't really affect the same kind of change. And what, what we've noticed is the students really latch on to um, the significance of, of the issue when they learn a little bit about it. And then as they start building the connections between their daily actions, then they're ready to not only adopt that change for themselves personally, but they can't wait to help other people see what they see. I think this program gives them concrete, measurable opportunities to, to actually see that they are making a difference in the world because they're part of a huge community of a global issue. And um, as they get excited, um, Catch the Wave is, 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 is the perfect name for um, inviting others to join and catch the wave with them. So it really isn't about directing other people to, 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 to stop doing something. It's about here's what we found out, here's what we think is important to everyone. Um, come and join us and be part of this change that will make a difference. And together we'll, you know, we'll be part of a, a, a bigger impact. The research and communication shows that people respond really well to um, a positive and uh, a want to get involved and be part of something that is a community of change. Uh, if it's doom and gloom, um, it doesn't seem to get the same traction. To have young people um, describe the nature of the problem and, and how it relates to you know, our personal choices on a daily basis and how easy it is to make a switch or an adjustment, in a, you know, do one thing differently, and we all do it. And, and let's and let's um, let's celebrate the impact of that because we're gonna we're gonna track it. We're gonna see how many fewer straws are gonna use, get used, or how many fewer uh, single-use water bottles are going to be used. And when we add that all up, what does that equate to? Well, there is a climate change connection. There is a water conservation connection. There's a energy connection. It's, and and when they tie it all together in their own words, um, I think other youth and adults pay attention. Yeah, it sounds like um, you're facilitating some really great, like holistic and critical thinking skills as well, which is really awesome. And I definitely think when this message is coming from uh, your younger generations, it's it is almost more impactful because they can say like, "Hey, this is what we're going to be dealing with this." So maybe you should step it up a little bit. Yeah, and. From a sustainability point of view, this really gives them a chance to connect with their community in the business sense and identify some opportunities that are win-win. Definitely. That sounds really awesome. I mean, a collective movement is what we need, and it's, it's awesome that you're bringing organizations together because I think that's really that's going to make, make it so much stronger, too, and getting those adults <laughs> enthusiastic about something. <laughs> yeah, it's not hard to do when you put the students center stage. Every, there's lots of room on the way. Everyone can get touched away.
That was Terra Informer Amanda Rooney speaking first with Laura Bamsey and then with Marnie Olson from the Element Society about their pilot project working in schools to raise awareness about single-use plastics. Have you ever wanted to be on the radio? Terra Informa is recruiting. So if you want to join our team and share your stories, check out the About Us tab on terrainforma.ca. That's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, situated on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. You can also visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Carter Gorzitsa and Charlotte Thomason. For headlines, Amanda Rooney for producing, and to Sydney Carbonic for updating our website. We've been your hosts, Jason Wong and Dylan Hall. Catch you next week on Terra Informa. <laughs>